all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Since I'm not in the studio this morning, you're listening to a show recorded in advance. With me is Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell. Good morning, Josie. We are going to be talking about some uh, tips for healthy eating this morning, and I'll kind of throw out a general tip, and then we'll let you elaborate on each one of them. So we'll get right into things. Start out, this first one says, choose good carbs, not no carbs. Whole grains are your best bet. So what role do carbs play in nutrition? Well, you know, when we talk about nutrition, we talk about macronutrients and micronutrients. And so macronutrients, there are three big groups, and each one of them has a job to do. Um, you've got carbohydrates, you've got fats, and proteins. And so each one of them plays a role in our body, and that's why it's important to have, um, have some of these at every meal. Um, what we want to make sure we're doing is having good quality of each one of those. Because um, you can find carbohydrates in lots and lots of stuff, but they may not also have those micronutrients that we want. That's where like your vitamins and minerals. And so, you know, we tend to think about carbohydrates in terms of energy, right? And that's one of its main um, functions. It helps support our blood glucose levels and gives us just the sheer amount of energy to live, move around in our body, run our brain and have good thought processes, those types of things. So, you know, again, I'm I'm definitely not a no carb kind of um, person, but the source of your carbohydrates matter. So tell us the difference and how you differentiate between what might be a good carb and maybe one that's not so good. Yeah. So, uh, of course, low carb is kind of the, the hot buzzword that's been around nutrition. And we often use that term in in healthcare. You know, you'll come in and see us, and we'll say, "Well, you need to work on reducing your carbohydrates or go on a low carb diet." And unfortunately, people translate that to no carb, right? And that becomes really, really restrictive. And I've already said carbohydrates have a role, right? So we want to look for things that not only have kind of that single macro macronutrient, but other things in with it. So um, one of the the things that I would say, not necessarily bad, right? Because all foods have a role in a well-balanced dietary pattern, right? But carbohydrate sources that I would choose less often would be things that have added sugars to them, right? So not the sugar that was 
grown in it, right? But sugar that we have artificially added into things. So sodas um, and sugar-sweetened beverages um, are one of those things that should be a rarely, um, you know, implemented into your diet. Um, then we think about kind of processed uh, baked goods, cookies and um, cakes and pies and candy, those kinds of things. Again, we still have those, right? Like uh, a world without cake for me is just sad. So, um, but it's about, again, balancing it and making the majority of the carbohydrates that you choose from a whole food source that hadn't been messed with a ton, right? So if we're going to choose um, corn, then we want it to be corn, right? Not um, necessarily a corn flake. Not saying corn flakes are bad, but those are on the more processed end of it. So every time we get um, a, a, a process applied to it, you're probably going to strip out some of the nutrients that are there. So as unmessed with as you have access to and that you can afford, so largely your fruits, vegetables, uh, and then your whole grains. Um, you mentioned whole grains. Um, that would be different than um, kind of an enriched grain which is often what we think of as as white products, white bread, white, white rice, those types of things, because a lot of the micronutrients and fiber have been kind of stripped off of them. Now, um, one thing that you've taught me on this show is uh, to read labels mm -hmm. on foods when you go to the grocery store. And you, we're talking about added sugar. And to me, that's one of the easy ones to see. It's usually listed in that list. And so that's something that you can keep an eye out for when you shop is are those added sugars? Yeah, absolutely. And that's thanks to the new food labels. So, uh, you know, five, six years ago, the food labels that were out did not have that. It just kind of had a total carbohydrate and then it would have it broken down into sugar and fiber. But it didn't take into account the source of that sugar, whether it was just naturally occurring or added. The new food labels um, do have that broken out and have an added sugar um, line on there. Now, the caveat to that is there are still some old labels floating around. Um, there's a uh, specific date that those new labels have to be kind of universally applied, but that date's kind of been, been delayed several times. So there may still be... Um, an older uh, label floating around out there. But by and large, if it's a whole food source like an apple, right, it's not going to have added sugar. Whereas if you're having an apple juice, it may. Um, you know, it may only be partial juice and then sugar and water added to it. So you really do have to read that label. All right. And we mentioned whole grains. So what would be some ways someone could add whole grain to their diet? Well, in general, if you are not eating whole grains, then we want to introduce those gradually, right? When we introduce fiber, because that's what we're getting with, with whole grains, is a gradual increase in your fiber so that you don't have um, kind of bloating, belly pain, constipation, those kinds of things. Um, and the general guideline is to make 50% of your grains whole, right? So I usually recommend people kind of start thinking about their day and what their grain sources are, right? Do you have toast for breakfast, right? Or are you a waffle or a pancake kind of person? Right, or are you a cereal, oatmeal kind of thing, um, and do the same for for all three of your meals and the snacks that you're eating, and then see what the whole grain swaps in each one of those would be. Right, so if you're a toast person, then switching from a white bread to a whole wheat bread product. Right, if you um, 
have rice with your supper or pasta at supper time, think about switching that out to a whole grain pasta. Um, If you have cereal, normally maybe you switch to an oatmeal, something like that. So look at kind of what you're eating and see what the whole grain swap would be and whether you have access to it, you can afford it, and do you like it? Because you shouldn't just eat a food because it's quote unquote healthy. If you don't enjoy it, don't eat it. Uh, one of the quick or the easy ways I thought was switching from white bread to whole wheat uh, bread. And, you know, to me, it took a little while to get used to the kind of the nuttiness. But really, to me, it's got a little bit of a better texture to it. And so, like I said, that was an easy one for me to switch from uh, white bread to, to whole wheat. I eat white bread occasionally, but I do like whole wheat bread. So yep. on uh, Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit this morning, we're talking about some tips for healthy eating and letting Josie expound on each one as we go through them. Next one, this one says, pay attention to the protein pack. Fish, poultry, nuts, and beans are your best choices. So again, what is it that protein does for our diet? Right. So again, it's kind of another one of those macronutrients, so a foundational part of our diet. Um, And protein we generally think of as kind of the building block for muscles, right? So if we want to have, and really it's amino acids. If we want to get break the protein all the way down and get to what we're getting at is amino acids, and that's the building blocks for protein for life, right? And so we we need protein on board to do that, but we tend to go protein overboard a lot of times um, because we kind of have that notion of if this much of something is good, then then more of it has to be better, right? Uh, And you can overdo it on protein in particular um, if we're choosing protein. Uh, kind of highly processed protein sources, again, which like your processed meats and those kinds of things, because macronutrients don't kind of exist in food products in isolation, right? Like you don't go to the store and just pick up a block of protein, right? You pick up a chicken or a fish or a tofu or a bean or something, and it comes with other things. We call that a nutrient package, right? So what else comes in it. And if it is an animal-based protein, which is what is most commonly done in um, in the majority of the world, but especially here in, uh, you know, more Western diet-based uh, areas, it's going to be an animal-based product. So a uh, chicken, a fish, a beef, a pork, um, seafood, uh, eggs, dairy, those kinds of things. And some of the things that it brings with it in that nutrient package is not only protein, but it brings fat, right? And fat's not bad, right? But we want to lean more on our unsaturated fats and less on our saturated fats. And usually animal-based sources um, have more of that saturated fat uh, and cholesterol in it. Uh, Then you can also get a little bit too much salt in some of those as well, especially if it's those processed meats or even some of our cheeses are kind of high in sodium. So again, if I've got blood pressure issues, then that that might play into the role there. Um, So it's not just when we add chicken to something, it's not just adding protein. We're also adding these other things um, in there. And, you know, if you're a regular listener to the show, you know that I don't talk about um, having to avoid anything um, to, in its entirety, right? That um, animal-based proteins can can be on your plate and that's fine. What we want to do is try to avoid stacking them, you know, multiple animals uh, at a meal. And then the portion in which we um, in which we do that. And how we balance that out with some meat-free meals or some animal-free meals that we get the benefit of the plant-based protein. 
One of the things that I like that you do on the show for us is give us that idea of if, if you have a dinner plate, mm. how how it should look, what should be, you know, how much should be this and should be that. So if you could, in this last minute or so, remind us of what our plate should look like. Absolutely. So when you look at your dinner plate, go ahead and mentally divide it in half. And that half of the plate is where fruits and vegetables go. Very, very nutrient dense. They count as a carbohydrate, but they are a complex carbohydrate full of fiber and micronutrients. The other half of the plate, we want to divide in half again so that we've got quarters. A quarter of that is where our starchier item goes. So that could be your whole grain. That could be potatoes, any of the other kind of starchier vegetables or rice or pasta. And then the other quarter is where that protein goes. So that could be your animal-based protein, your dairy, or your plant-based protein like a bean, nut, legume, something like that there. Where does the dessert go? (laughs) Well, the dessert is usually going to be a sweetened item, usually. Um, So if you're going to have a kind of a processed sweet, like a cake or a cookie, I would just swap that um, starch item off. So maybe leave the bread off or the rice off and add the dessert in there. Or you can always choose fruit for your dessert to round out that big half of the plate. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. I'm Josie Bidwell, licensed nurse practitioner and associate professor of preventive medicine at UMMC. I'm not in the studio this morning, so you're listening to a pre-recorded episode of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm joined this morning by producer Kevin Farrell to share some healthy eating tips. Good morning, Josie, and I'd like to say uh, thanks, as always, for the what you do on a regular basis, but also appreciate you coming in sometimes when we're not on the air to get these shows recorded in advance so we've got some good information for folks that listen, even when you're not able to join us live in studio. Well, it's always a pleasure. You know, I can talk about food forever, I think, so you have to rein me in sometimes. <laughs> We are throwing out some healthy eating tips, and Josie's expounding on it with a couple of follow-up questions. The next one on our list says, choose foods with healthy fats, limit foods high in saturated fat, and avoid foods with trans fat. Plant oils, nuts, and fish are the healthiest sources. So talk us uh, through us. What are saturated fats and trans fats? So they're the, the kind of set of fats that we tend to think of as being not as heart healthy, right? They contribute more to cholesterol levels and then also the formation of um, you know plaque in our arteries and those kinds of things. So they're definitely on the, the end of things that we want to enjoy less often. And in terms of the trans fats, almost never. Um, And most products should be labeled uh, to say that they're, if they have trans fat or trans fat free. And and most of the products have been 
reformulated uh, to remove the trans fats. And so that's why some of the um, baked items or refrigerated bread products, so your canned biscuits and pizza doughs and that kind of stuff, may not taste quite the same as what you remember them tasting like because a lot of them have been uh, reformulated to remove that that trans fat because it really plays no role in health uh, whatsoever. So I, I think this might be a softball, but I'll lob it to you anyway. <laughs> uh, what about a plant-based diet? Can that help us control our fat intake? Absolutely. So um, saturated fat, while it can be found in plant foods, and I'll talk about the the limited plant foods that that happens in, it is largely an an animal-based fat. So when we talk again about that nutrient package, when we choose animal-based products, um, a lot of the fat that is going to come with that is going to be saturated. Not all of it, but some of it. Um, when we talk about uh, plant-based sources of fats, so you mentioned um, plant oils, um, nuts, uh, seeds are also another one that I would kind of lob into the um, healthier fat category. Um, and that's things like chia seeds, poppy seeds, sesame seeds, all of those. Um, they have more of what we call heart-healthy fats, those kind of omega-3 fatty acids that we've long kind of touted um, Fish for right, like we want to eat, uh, you know, salmon and tuna for for the omega threes. You can get those from plant based sources as well. Um, when we talk about saturated fat sources in a plant based diet, it's coconut and palm. So, um, like your coconut oils and your palm oils are plant based sources of saturated fat. They would still be cholesterol free, right? Because you got to have a liver to make cholesterol, uh, but they would be a saturated fat choice. And so that got a lot of good marketing um, with coconut oil. And so that was largely seen as a, a healthier swap for folks, but it's still an added fat. I want to, I want, just like we talked about naturally occurring sugars and added sugars, the same kind of goes for fat. Like, should fat be in this? And if it shouldn't be, why are we adding it, right? We usually add fat for flavor or to keep something from sticking or in baked goods and those kinds of things. But if you're thinking, is this saturated or unsaturated? The quick kind of way to to tell most often is what it looks like at room temperature, If it's solid at room temperature, think Crisco, butter, those kinds of things, that's saturated. Um, The fat around a piece of meat, right, saturated. Um, If it's liquid at room temperature, like uh, avocado oil or olive oil, then it is an unsaturated fat. But all of those are added fats, right? Um, Even olive oil is an added fat when we add just the oil. The whole food source of that fat would be the olive, right? So again, we want to try and choose those whole food sources as much as we can, because every time we add an oil, whether it be a saturated fat oil or an unsaturated fat, it's still a pretty big whop of calories, about 120 calories per tablespoon and 14 grams of fat. So if you're trying to lose weight, adding oils... um, it's not really going to help you in most cases. So when we talk about fats, does how we prepare our food come into the equation? Absolutely. So um, it seems that over the past couple of weeks, the majority of the patients that I have seen, um, they they come in and they're like, I'm trying to lose weight, but man, I love potatoes. Like that, And I mean, multiple patients this past week. And I'm like, well, potatoes are okay. 
right? It's how we prepare the potatoes or what we put on the potatoes, right? So if we look at just potato, right? And we think about a baked potato, right? Now, I'm not talking a baked potato with butter and sour cream and cheese and bacon and all that kind of stuff, right? Just the baked potato. A medium-sized baked potato has got around 160 calories and almost no fat, like less than a gram of fat in that baked potato, French fries, right? So the same exact raw ingredient, a potato, cut up and fried in oil, um, 365 calories and 17 grams of fat. So um, it's it's often not the food that we start with. It's how we prepare it, right? And so I can hear people out there going, well, nobody's going to eat a dry baked potato. And I, I agree, right? But even when you start with you know, adding something else to your baked potato, whether it be a little bit of butter or whether it be a little bit of sour cream or Greek yogurt, those kinds of things, you're able to add some of those flavorings in there because you started with a relatively low-fat product, right? Although my favorite way to top a baked potato is with chili, right? And so a good um, veggie chili that's full of black beans and, um, you know, other peppers and onions and those kinds of things, because then I don't need to add the butter. I don't need to add the, you know, all of the, the rich things on top of that potato to get that flavor. So absolutely how you prepare things matters. That's why we often talk about, um, you know, moving to a baked item over a fried item. But again, we want to be careful how much oil we pour on top of that, because I'll watch cooking shows all the time and they will plop some chicken down, nice boneless, skinless chicken breast and just pour some glugs of olive oil on top of that. And again, that can be okay, but you just need to be aware of the the amount of calories and fat that that is going to add to that product that can turn something that's relatively low in calories and fat into something relatively high um, with not a lot of volume. So, I, you know, I like to use my air fryer, but what I'm hearing you say is it, it, that's a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. But again, don't glug, 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 glug yes. the olive oil, just maybe a light spritz to uh, make sure it doesn't stick to the uh, the oven or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I keep a little spritzer of avocado oil, and so I'll, I'll spritz. If I'm looking for it to get like a golden color, um, when I do potatoes in my air fryer, I don't put anything on them. They crisp up lovely um, in there without anything. Um, I pick and choose where I add my fats, right? If it's something that I am going to taste, right? Like a salad dressing. I'm going to taste the flavor of that oil in the salad dressing. It's going to help me coat all the vegetables and all that kind of good stuff. Then I'll kind of spend my my fat calories there, right? If it's just to saute something, which normally we throw some oil in a pan, throw our veggies in to saute, then I don't want to kind of waste or spend my calories there because I'm ultimately not going to taste that oil, right? What I'm trying to taste is the uh, caramelized sugars that come out of the vegetables and kind of the little brown bits that stick to the bottom of the pan that you scrape up that make everything taste yummy. And you can get that same flavor profile by doing a water saute or a stock saute or even, you know, wine or beer, depending on what you're what you're cooking with, um, and still get that nice caramelized flavor to come out of things without adding that extra fat. We talked about fiber a little bit earlier. This tip says to choose a fiber-filled diet rich in whole grains, vegetables, and fruits. So we've been talking about the benefits of certain things. How does fiber benefit our diet? Well, fiber has multiple health benefits, but you can kind of lump them into two kind of categories. One is going to be gut health or colon health, and the other is going to be heart health, right? And so just like you can kind of lump those, there's also two different kinds of fiber. So there's um, 
the fiber that is going to help lower cholesterol. It, it's what kind of helps flush the bad cholesterol out. And then there's the type that's going to help um, clean out the colon, right? So soluble and insoluble fibers. Um, and insoluble fiber, we like to think about like a broom or a brush. And uh, I learned that from uh, Fiona Lewis, who's a dietitian who's been on the show before. And that's how she kind of describes it as a broom that sweeps out your colon, right? You know, and so it helps remove um, you know things that are just hanging around in there that we don't need to be helps you form a good bowel movement, be regular, those kinds of things. Um, the soluble fiber, it's more gloopy. So if you think about oatmeal and how when you make oatmeal, it kind of sits and it gets that that gelatinous kind of quality to it. That's the soluble fiber in it, um, and that kind of helps kind of capture cholesterol and help um, lower some of that down. So both of them are equally as important. Um, Sources of those, I don't want people to get kind of too hung up and going, well, did I get enough insoluble versus soluble? Again, it's whole foods, right? So um, usually solubles, when we think about fruits and vegetables, are more the fleshy areas of it, and insolubles are more the peels on things. So that's why we often tell you to leave the peels on when you're eating different things so that you get the benefits of both of those types of fibers um, at one time. If it's something that you're supposed to eat the peel on, I always feel compelled to add that caveat in there so that nobody is munching on a banana the whole thing or an orange and then and then being mad at me. So if you're supposed to eat the peel, like an apple, grape, something like that, go ahead and wash it real good and eat it. So as we mentioned, I think earlier with whole grain, if you're trying to add fiber to your diet, you maybe should not go overboard. <laughs> yeah, don't go from I eat no fiber to I eat all of the fiber um, overnight. And the average, average American eats somewhere around 11 to 14 grams of fiber per day. Um, we want folks kind of at a minimum to be around 25 grams. Um, when I'm working with folks on weight loss and some other types of things, we get them kind of closer to 35 or 40, but again, slowly. Um, so usually I recommend about an increase of about five grams of fiber per day, a week at a time. So if you're eating, you know, 15 grams of fiber as your baseline, then the first week that we start making changes, we're going to aim for 20 a day. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We aren't taking phone calls during this program because it's recorded in advance, but you can always reach me by email. It's fit at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Josie. This is Kevin Farrell, producer of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. And today on the show, Josie's been uh, helping us expound on some basic um, healthy eating tips. I throw out the tip and then we talk about it a little bit to to get in a little bit more depth. Uh, We've moved on to our next one, which is eat more vegetables and fruits. Go for color and variety, dark green, yellow, orange, and red. So... In terms of servings of fruits and vegetables, one thing we talk a lot about on the show, but always important to kind of reemphasize it, to hammer it home for thick-headed folks like myself. (laughs) You can never hear it too many times. Exactly. So fruits and vegetables, how many servings a day should we be striving for? Well, you know, that's going to depend on several things in terms of how old you are, you know, um, different medical conditions, those kinds of things. But again, fruits and vegetables should be the, the basis of our dietary pattern. Again, half of that plate. So if you're looking for kind of an actual number thrown out there, um, there's been a lot of marketing around um, pick five, right? And so that's a, a, an easy number to remember. Um, if you're on a plant-based diet or um, at least a, a plant-predominant diet, you're going to be higher than that. Um, so usually the range is somewhere between five to nine servings. But at the end of the day, we don't get that. Right. Uh, we don't. The majority of Americans, whether you be children, adults or elderly, do not get even the five servings that we're talking about there. So what I usually recommend folks do is start with kind of self-awareness of where you are. Right. Because we just want you to eat more. Right. More fruits and vegetables. So if you, um, you know, do you know, track your intake for a couple of days or just sit down and think about what you had over the past couple of days uh, and go realistically, how many servings of fruit did I have? How many servings of vegetables did I have? And go from there, um, because it is often much lower than people think that they are taking in. People tend to overestimate their fruit and vegetable consumption because most people like them, right? Like there are people who don't love a ton of vegetables, but they like some. And most people like fruit as well. And so if you say, do you eat fruits and vegetables? Most folks are going to say, yeah, I do. And I'll say, how often? Oh, you know, several times a day, most meals. But when we actually get down into the, you know, no pun intended, meat and potatoes of it, they're not, they're not there. Uh, so So at least not on a consistent basis. And that's what we're trying to build is consistent habits of adding fruits and vegetables to your plate. Um, So what is a serving? If I have a banana in the morning, do I consider that to be a serving? Depends on how big the banana is, right? So bananas can be quite large and they are one of the sweeter fruits, right? Again, I don't want people to to be afraid of fruit because of the sugar content. I hear that so often. Well, I can't have fruit. It has too much sugar. Again, it's naturally occurring sugar that comes in a nutrient package with wonderful vitamins and minerals and lots of fiber, right? But bananas do tend to be mushier and require kind of just less work to digest, right? So a smaller serving of a banana, especially if you have diabetes, right, and you're trying to control your blood sugar, 
is warranted for most people. Um, and so usually about a half a banana is a serving. And so I just tell people, you know, cut it in half and just put a little saran wrap over the cut end and it should keep and you can have it later that day. It's just kind of about how much your body can process at one time. In terms of other um, fruits, uh, usually if it's a like a hand fruit, like an apple, orange, pear, something like that, if you make a fist um, in your hand, that's about a serving of a, a hand fruit, um, like a baseball. Uh, if it is a juice, right? So juice, we have stripped some of the stuff away, the fiber largely, so we don't want to overdo it on juice, but a half a cup of juice would be a serving. And then if it is a dried fruit, so raisins, cranberries, apricots, you know, whatever like that, it's a quarter of a cup is a serving there because everything's concentrated, right? It's it's dehydrated. So you've pulled the water out of it, right, which is what one of the things that gives fruit and vegetables so much bulk, right? Um, again, for veggies, it depends on whether it's a cooked veggie or a raw veggie, right? You can have a little bit larger sizes of raw ones because you haven't cooked the water out, right? Think about how much um, spinach shrinks, right? So you wind up with a much smaller serving size of cooked spinach, even though you started with a, a much bigger size of it there. Um, usually we think about things in, in half cup servings. Uh, but again, I don't want people measuring out their food for every meal. That can be helpful in the beginning when you're learning what a serving size looks like. But on the on the regular for, you know, three meal a day kind of um, setup, it can get really tedious and really time consuming uh, to measure out your food like that. And it's often... Um, People just get depressed at having to do that, right? And then that leads them to choose some less healthy um, food options there. So, again, if we just kind of focus on making half of that plate, fruits and veggies, and then thinking about how you can work those into your snack time uh, is another really good option. You know, you mentioned that a lot of people overestimate the amount of fruits and vegetables that they eat. And I think one of the times, one of our episodes, you mentioned something that I thought was a good idea, and that's just a simple food journal, maybe mm -hmm. one day take a little notepad and write down everything you eat. Yeah, absolutely. We use it very frequently in lifestyle medicine clinic. Um, usually when a patient comes to see me for the first time, I'll say, just walk me through the last day, right? Your last 24 hours and what you had. And it varies in how well people are able to recall that or in any type of consistency, right? A lot of folks will tell me, well, I really only eat once a day. Right. And it's not till eight or nine o'clock at night. And this is what I have. And they kind of either miss or forget about some of the maybe nibbles and snacks and things that we have throughout the day. So really kind of being proactive and in, in, okay for the next three to five days, I want you to write down all the things. Right. So that we can really see what the pattern is looking like um, and what foods you are choosing and how we can make those still fit within what we're trying to achieve, because it's not about restriction, right? A lot of people think I'm going to take their candy from them, and I'm not, right? I want to talk about how you can still enjoy those things, but add in some other stuff to fill up on so you can have smaller amounts of that. Now, folks that I don't recommend food journaling on are folks with eating disorders, right? So um, uh, binge eating disorders are, uh, we're starting to see them more. I'm starting to see more patients come in with, with those. And then, of course, you have your, your anorexia, bulimia, those types of eating disorders. Um, 
those people are already hyper focused on their food, and so I'm, I'm, it often makes it worse when we when we food journal with that. So if if that's something that you're struggling with, then that's probably not the right tool uh, to help you start to move forward with your nutrition. So we talked about how fruits and vegetables are good for you, but I think maybe what a lot of people might not realize is the texture and the color that they add mm. might make eating more enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the old kind of saying is you eat with your eyes first, and it really can can be that way. You know, we think about how we build a plate normally. It's pretty brown, right? We have some type of of animal protein, whether it be a, a beef or a chicken. Those are the two most common, sometimes pork, um, that we have on our plates. And then we have some type of starch. So a potato or bread or rice or mashed potatoes with gravy on top of it, right? And then some piece of bread on the side. And so it's all very kind of just monochrome, whitish, brownish, right? And are, it's kind of boring to look at, right? Um, whereas if we have multiple colors, then we've got multiple things for our eyes to focus on and appreciate. And it kind of slows us down, right? Because if you take the time to stop, right, and appreciate all the colors that you have on that plate, um, it really can add an extra layer of enjoyment and appreciation. And those different textures you mentioned as well, um, you know, a crunch um, is a can go a long way in turning a boring meal into something that's a little bit more exciting. This is Southern Remedy, Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. And this morning we're talking about tips for healthy eating. Let's move on to the next one, Josie. This one says calcium is important, but milk isn't the only or even best source. So again, kind of the first question I always throw out there, what role does calcium play in our diet? When we hear the word calcium, we tend to think about strong bones, right? And that's not wrong. The majority of the calcium in our body is in our bones and teeth, right? So I'll just refer to our bones like a bank, right? That's where the majority of our calcium is stored. But it's certainly not the only use of calcium in our body. Um, Muscle function depends on calcium, in particular heart muscle is um, calcium is needed, as well as nerve conduction. So just moving around and doing it well and having normal heart rhythms are all linked to calcium levels. So making sure that we have adequate calcium is important for just general overall function. So the tip said milk's not the only or even best source. So what are some other sources of calcium? Well, you know, we we tend to choose dairy because it's convenient, right? And it can it can be a part of, of your diet, right? But there are people who are lactose intolerant. There are people, um, and there are lactose-free options out there for folks that still want to enjoy dairy from that perspective. There are um, uh, different formulations of uh, milks that can, can do that. But there are people that have a, like a dairy allergy. So it's not lactose intolerance, but actual... Um, allergy to the dairy protein. And so we need to look for ways to um, get calcium from another source. Some of the other things that dairy can can lead us toward is if we overconsume dairy, it can constipate us, um, especially little kids that overconsume milk and dairy products. It can um, make them be constipated. And if you're having problems with um, being iron deficient and having iron deficiency anemia, um, that uh, dairy can kind of help, well, kind of 
make you not absorb your iron as much. So it can kind of contribute to worsening that. So uh, looking for non-dairy based sources of calcium is a completely viable strategy. You know, for me that you know don't um, do animal products at all, I get all of my calcium from uh, non-dairy based sources. And so some of the uh, ones that I add to my diet and that are great sources of calcium are things like seeds. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. offering suggestions on healthy eating today on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at UMMC. This show is pre-recorded since I can't be in the studio this morning. With me is the producer of the show, Kevin Farrell. Good to have you, Ed Josie. And we've been doing a lot of interesting discussion about uh, healthy eating, and we're throwing out some tips and elaborating on those. And before the last break, we were talking about calcium, uh, and you were mentioning some alternate sources of calcium. You talked about chia seeds. Uh, what else are ways we can get some calcium in our diet? Absolutely. So let's go to some more common foods, right? Because while chia seeds are part of my diet, they're probably not a part of the majority of folks' diet. So what are some maybe easier to access or more familiar? looking items that are good sources of calcium. Um, beans and lentils um, can be a good source of calcium. In particular, white beans um, are uh, an excellent source of calcium. Uh, when we talk about nuts, um, there is calcium in nuts. And if you're looking for kind of the most calcium bang for your buck, almonds are, are going to be the nut that has the most calcium in it. And then um, leafy green vegetables. Now, that gets a lot of pushback from folks a lot of times um, because leafy green vegetables also have something called oxalate in them. And so oxalate will sometimes block the absorption of calcium. And so you won't get as much calcium um, from these foods that do, in fact, have calcium in them. So you want to choose if you're adding these things into your diet for the calcium benefit of it. You want to choose the lower um, to medium oxalate content. Uh, greens, which are usually things like broccoli, kale, those types of, um, of vegetables are going to have less oxalate in them. So you get the biggest, uh, biggest bang from your calcium buck. All right. Uh, before we leave calcium, kind of old school says, you know, kids need to drink their milk. First of all, is that true? And then 
should adults continue to drink milk as well? Right. So, again, it, it goes back to the fact that it's a very easy, convenient package in which to get your calcium, right? So there are nutrients of concern when we think about nutrition, which just means we don't get enough of them in our diet. And calcium is is one of those. Um, potassium can also be uh, one. And so milk can be a good source uh, and dairy in, in general can be a good source for adding those nutrients in. Um, so if you've got a very, very picky eater that is not not going to eat any of these other calcium-based sources of foods, then you know dairy certainly can fill you know fill that gap there. Uh, and I know when my kids were were little, that's one of the only ways I felt like they were getting some kind of some protein and some nutrients was if they had a glass of milk. Um, if milk is not something that you enjoy, then you don't have to add it just to get um, your calcium. Now, if you're going to not do milk with your with your children, which can be done, right? There are children that are completely vegan children that grow and do well, you're going to want to work with your pediatrician to make sure that you are getting those nutrients from other sources. Um, A lot of the uh, non-dairy products that you would swap for a dairy alternative, so, you know, like a soy milk, um, most of those are fortified, so they're going to have calcium added to them. Same deal with your plant-based yogurts. Um, They're going to have calcium uh, added into those types of things. So look for fortified foods if you're not going to have that dairy on board. And so what about adults? Do do we still drink milk as an adult? If you enjoy it, you can, um, right? But you don't have to, to get your calcium, right? If you're going to be able to eat a variety of these other um, foods, and doesn't just have to be a glass of milk, right? It could be a Parmesan cheese, right? So there's different calcium contents in different types of cheeses. We kind of think about dairy being all the same, but it's not. Um, again, Parmesan is aged and a lot of the water is pulled out of it, so everything's kind of concentrated down. So it's a higher um, calcium source than, say, like a brie cheese or something like that. Um, so you can add those in. You can add a, a Greek yogurt in, you know, really good um, low in sugar, high in protein um, type of, of yogurt to get that calcium in. I think we have uh, time for one last tip, and it is about salt. Eating less salt is good for everyone's health. Choose more fresh foods and fewer processed foods. So uh, we need to track both salt that we add to the food, like out of the salt shaker, but I think also the amount of salt that exists in food that we eat. And again, we can refer to the uh, nutrition label. Yeah, so you can look at the nutrition label. And again, food that hasn't been messed with as much is going to tend to be lower in sodium, right? So... Uh, We tend to think about sodium as the salt shaker, right? And that is absolutely one source of salt that we get. And then there is kind of the naturally occurring sodium that is in foods. But if it is an unprocessed food, that's usually pretty low. Um, And then there is going to be the sodium that comes in packaged products. Um, So the big ones that we think about are things like cheese, um, soups, uh, lunch meats and bacon, uh, and then seasoning mixes, right? Um, So a taco seasoning mix or spaghetti mix or, you know, a boxed dinner mix. Those are all going to have high sources of sodium. And when we look at the distribution of where the typical American gets the majority of their sodium intake, it's in that processed package uh, category. It's not in the kind of naturally occurring sodium in foods or in even the salt shaker. It's starting with super salty packaged items and then having kind of nowhere to go from there because you already started really salty. Um, So 
You can try and buy reduced sodium versions of some of those things, although oftentimes that is uh, more expensive when you buy reduced sodium, which just makes me a little bit mad when uh, it's got less stuff in it. But I understand it from a production standpoint. It often um, takes some different techniques to, to get it to preserve and those kinds of things. Um, where you want to kind of try and spend your money in terms of reduced sodium products are the things you can't drain, right? So um, draining a canned vegetable and rinsing it really well, that's the, the other key part. While it cannot get rid of all of the sodium because that's kind of pressurized into a lot of those things, it can get rid of, you know, somewhere around 20% or so of the sodium. So, you know, if you can't afford a low-sodium bean, Right, but you can a regular, let's rinse it and drain it really well. Where I would want you to spend the low sodium money would be like a stock that you're going to use or a soup, right? Because you cannot drain and rinse a sock or uh, a stock or soup. If you do, you just poured it down the drain, which is definitely not cost effective, right? So try to choose um, either the no added salt or the lower sodium um, versions of those. And then also, you know, make your own seasoning blends. You know, I'm a big fan of that. I just get a big mason jar and mix up my seasoning blends in those and keep them in the cabinet. They keep for a long time and I can control how much salt I add into those things. So uh, you mentioned vegetables and, and draining. That so would it be preferable in in, the, in when we're talking about sodium to, to go with frozen vegetables? Frozen would absolutely be a wonderful option and one that I think is often underutilized a lot. Um, now there are multiple things that come into play there. You know where you shop. A lot of Mississippi is very rural, and so we will shop at convenience store type places, and they may only have canned items. But thankfully, that's expanding. So even some of your dollar stores now are carrying a frozen section that has things in them. But frozen vegetables are sometimes fresher than fresh vegetables, especially if it's an out-of-season item or something that's not grown in your area. Um, And so they're kind of picked at the peak of freshness, flash frozen, so they maintain a lot of their nutrients. What you want to be careful of is if it comes in a sauce of some type, right? So sometimes you'll see broccoli with a butter cheese sauce. Again, doesn't mean there's anything wrong with that butter and cheese sauce, but if you're trying to reduce your sodium, that's probably not the not going to get it, right? If all of your other items on your plate are also in some type of sauce. So I would choose those less frequently and choose more of just the only ingredient it has in it as whatever fruit or vegetable it was supposed to be. You know, I think there are some people when they eat, they will grab the salt shaker and immediately just start shaking salt mm-hmm. on before they even taste it. Yeah. I'm guessing that maybe is not the best idea. Well, we always want to taste, right, um, and see because people's uh, levels of salt that they enjoy may be, may be different, right? Um, for someone who doesn't add a lot of salt to things, your taste buds do get used to that less salty quality of it. And so if you're maybe eating with someone who 
has a little bit more salt in their diet, you certainly probably don't need to add any salt into what you're doing. And the and the uh, the flip of that is true as well. So I'm, I'm generally always a fan of tasting it first to see what it needs, right? It may just need some pepper or it may need to squeeze a lemon juice or something like that to kind of wake the flavor up. There's lots of uh, no sodium or low sodium options that we can use to flavor things. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. What is Chalkboard Chat? It's an MPB education podcast. It's a variety show providing information and resources for teachers, students, parents, guardians, and everyday people on various topics. It's learning something new with every publication. Chalkboard Chat. Find the podcast or listen from chalkboardchat.mpbonline.org.